Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. I am getting ready to go to a fireplace convention. What are you doing today? I am getting ready. I, as you see, I have a bunch of papers printed out because I think I just killed a million trees because I am getting ready to embark on a week-long trip to a cabin without internet in order to write and get work done. So that's what I'm preparing for. Yeah. The cabin, uh, I like that you said saving trees and then embark. And, uh, and I like that you're going for a getaway because it's probably your spring break, but to do work? Yeah. Because spring break becomes the only time to get work done. Like people think, oh, it's spring break and, you know, students get a break. Yeah, no, for a lot of professors, that becomes the only dedicated time to actually get some writing done uninterrupted. I know. I'm going to still not get my uh, the paper that I need to rewrite and resubmit to another journal. I'm still not and not sent to another journal because I'm going to go to New Orleans with my kids and then fuck Ooh. off. Ooh. And wife. And <laughs> I love how Laura was a bit of an afterthought there. Let's hope she, she wasn't. Listen. She she wasn't. I should have said we. And it's because our kids are at two different schools with two different spring breaks. So we have to find the overlap point right at the hinge and make the most mm. of it. So it'll be a like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday on the hinge of our two spring breaks. It's kind of great though. I really, I would love to take Aaron to New Orleans at some point. I had a great time when we were there for the, I felt like garbage afterwards from, from New from Orleans. The meet, from, from the meeting, the M-E-A-T part of our meeting? No, see the meeting, that was more Texas. When we went to Austin, that's where like the meat eating got excessive. Mm. Uh, mm. But I think it was the alcohol and kind of the greasy food that got me uh, in New uh, Orleans. Yeah. Like I felt like death. I felt great yeah, in Austin. Were... You give me like beef rib and I'm the happiest person in the world. I can't speak to my uh, underage yet freshman child who likes to go party with the frat boys and, and, and how he will be, be behaving. But the rest of us will probably not be imbibing anything and then, but except for the rib part and the food and the beignets. So I was going to say, imbibe feel, some beignets. Yeah, we will be definitely taking in some... Um, uh, carbohydrates and, and and refined products. Anyway, let, in, let's let's in other, <laughs> Yeah, let's let's do that. So, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and say just a couple words about our guest. Um, I'll let her tell the story of her. But she, uh, Jennifer Raff is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Kansas, and she is an anthropological geneticist who specializes in um, research relating to the peopling of the Americas and the prehistory of indigenous populations in uh, the Americas, uh, primarily in North America. She has a brand new book out called Origin that is a narrative of the archeological and genetic evidence of the peopling of the Americas. And as someone who is not an anthropological geneticist or an archeologist, um, I have a familiarity with the major sort of themes along the yeah. way, but the, the for both of us. But the 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 details that she has filled in, I feel like I have uh, updated everything. I, I basically I was stuck in undergrad slash grad school with my knowledge of the people in the Americas, and this book allows me to feel like I know what scientists are thinking right now. It's amazing yeah. and beautiful. And so let's bring her in. It got some rave reviews. You can bring her on in, but it got some rave reviews from past podcast guest Jerry De Silva as well. Anyway, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on today and talk to us about your new book, which by 
all measures seems to be doing really well and is well loved and well received. So major congrats on that. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I love your guys' podcast and, uh, oh. you know, it sounds very exciting podcast that you're familiar with. So <laughs> that is exciting. Uh, yeah. So we start the show off kind of the same way every time as much as possible. And that's trying to get to know a little bit about you. And so one thing that Chris had mentioned is you have a really wonderfully detailed Wikipedia page. And and rather than us reading off that is, let's just, you know, let's get the, the addition from you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into anthropology and ancient DNA in particular. Let's see. Where did I get started? Um, so... <laughs> I started doing, um, I started out with a love of archaeology as a kid, like everybody does. Didn't give that up. My mother went back to school when I was a kid and to pursue a degree in neuroscience. Basically grew up on college campuses near laboratories. And so I was very, very familiar with what it was like. We would spend sometimes long, long days in the lab. I would just kind of hang out. And, uh, I, I learned to love lab environments. I learned to love biology as much as archaeology. And um, I couldn't really decide when I got to college, but I had just seen a movie uh, my senior year of high school, I think, a little movie called Jurassic Park. And <laughs> that put the idea of ancient DNA on my radar, even though, of course, it was um, flawed as far as the science goes. And uh, I just kind of kept going after that. I, I really learned to love the idea of using genetics as a tool for understanding the past. And I've been very, very lucky to get to continue to do that in my professional career. So I want to ask a little bit about what, before we jump into the book, I want to ask a little bit about what led up to the book, because you've been writing for the public for a while. And this podcast is, is about public communication. So I really am, am curious about what got you started doing public uh, communication and then what role has it played in, in helping you develop and establish your career? Yeah, that was a twisty path. Um, so it's I started writing for the public, I think it would have been on my second postdoc, <laughs> which I was doing at Northwestern University with uh, Jeff Hayes. Um, and I had been on the job market one cycle. You know, it's easy to say, oh, go into industry, right? But I didn't even know how one starts to do that. I, you know, it was, it was a complete black box to me. I also thought, well, you know, maybe I could go into science writing, but I knew um, I did not have the skills for that. <laughs> and I didn't have the training for that. So I decided whatever I'm gonna do, it, I'm gonna need to be a good writer and I'm gonna to need to be a better writer than I am now. And so I didn't really know how to get the training I needed to become a better writer. So I just started blogging <laughs> and I thought, I'll just learn by doing. And I did. <laughs> and so over the next few years, I slowly learned who my audience was, how to write for them um, and what kinds of things worked for me as far as topics writing. Um, and it turns out that I write best about things I'm passionate about, like really passionate about. And so um, the writing kind of took off and, and I went on and, you know, all my mentors have been very supportive for the public. And eventually a monthly column, although I guess I could have done it more often than that, but a, a regular column for The Guardian, one of The Guardian science blogs. That was a wonderful experience. I'm still sad they closed that down. 
and, and but that got the got the attention of my agent and he reached out to me um, and he said you know have you ever thought about writing a book and I said nope I have never thought about writing a book at all um, but you know over the course of several conversations we started to embark on this path and and here we are I don't know almost four years later um, and it's done and I'm really grateful it's been a wild ride so um, I know so I listened to your book so I know at the end of the audiobook there's an interview in which you're asked to recount the the really positive story that you tell of anthropological genetics at the beginning but I'm going to ask the other story the next one that you tell about the Smithsonian uh, Museum of Native Americans in New York because I lived there so long and that's one of the early museums I went to and and reading uh, or listening to you recount uh, the the collection that led to the founding of that museum I should have known it but I didn't and it, and it horrified me so I wondered if you could tell us tell our listeners a little bit of, of the heritage of our discipline by telling us that story yeah um, I I'm not a historian of science, and so I really had to learn a lot as I was writing this book myself. So the story of this collection is way similar to the story of collections in American institutions all over the country. Um, so it was founded by George uh, Gustav Hay. I think that's how you pronounce it. I actually am so ignorant. I don't even know how you pronounce his name. I've just read it. Um, but he was a um, he was a an entrepreneur, he was a very, very wealthy man, and he was obsessed with uh, Native American artifacts and uh, antiquarianism. And so he amassed this incredible collection of artifacts, relics, as well as human remains, um, although he didn't really keep those for himself. He wasn't that interested in the remains, just the objects. Um, and he built up this enormous collection in New York um, that was that, that he eventually created the Museum of the American Indian in New York City in 1916 in order to house it. Um, that museum, I, I understand, underwent some uh, financial difficulties after his death, and the collections themselves eventually became acquired by the Smithsonian for the Museum of the American Indian um, in the 1980s, I believe. And they stayed in New York for a time, but then they, in the late, 1990s, I think they were transferred to the Cultural Resources Facility in DC, and then they have been integrated, at least some of them, into the exhibits. Um, others remain in storage, um, and others, I believe, have been repatriated back to their tribes of origin. Um, you know, I've been to the Museum of the American Indian, um, their, their facility, and it's really incredible. I have to say, the people who work there do incredible work. Um, they are very sensitive, they're very engaged with communities. Um, so even though I think museums still have a really long way to go, I have, I, I'm really impressed with how, um, how far they have come. I just wanted to sort of emphasize what we both said, and I'm curious about the removal of native remains without permission that led to the, the founding. Today, the way the museum is run today, uh, hopefully has no bearing on how, it, how those things were founded. Right, so I don't want to. I don't want to disparage people working today. Yes, and I think that's what you're yeah, saying. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, for sure. Yeah, and um, as part of my research for this book, I began reading sort of um, the the writings on the subject and the accounts of how these these artifacts were taken from cemeteries and mounds, and 
it's really distressing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I interviewed a number of um, cultural resource uh, managers and um, other individuals from tribes who were, were dealing with um, the fallout from this and the impact of this. And, and, and it's very, very um, painful for them to, to have their ancestors, not just their in these collections. And that was something that I'm not sure that many um, non-scientists are aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I know that our, you know, in our community, um, scholars are aware of this, but um, I hope so anyway. But I wanted to bring that, that's like, so that what's at stake here when we talk about repatriation. That's a really wonderful comment. And, and I think especially, like you said, the public, like a lot of us in the field are aware of it, but acknowledging that troubling past and how how this knowledge came to be it doesn't take away from the knowledge gained but it adds really critical context and how that context still can cause harm today so I, I think that is a really wonderful inclusion and so you know talking about this this book is really about you know the peopling of north america and looking at populational history and one of the really interesting parts of the book was this ice wall that you described that that blocked movement into the americas that in many ways resembles the ice wall we can all envision either from watching Game of Thrones or reading Game of Thrones. Um, and so this is kind of the first time a lot of us has thought of this as a real thing and not some fictional thing dreamt up by George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, and you kind of take us through some of the vignettes or you kind of paint some vignettes in your book that help us with this. And we were wondering if you could speak to the reality of what this massive obstacle uh, was and how it kind of plays out in our theories of the peopling of America. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of it is a certain amount of speculation on my part, because I, I don't really know how to, to grapple with this, this feature on the landscape that would have been so huge, right? Um, and so, of course, I resort to pop culture, although it's now it's going to be a bit dated, right? <laughs> but this ice wall, you know, it was this massive sheet of ice covering most of Canada and northern United States. Um, at its peak, at its fullest extent, it would have extended south of Chicago. I mean, that's mind blowing to me. Um, I, I think I've read it, it extended as far as the Missouri Valley, River Valley. Um, that's really, really far south. Um, and it also is responsible the sort of the advance in forms of the Great Lakes and is responsible for a lot of the other major features that you see um, in, in the Northern United States and in Southern Canada. And um, it is, it must have been an absolutely um, important feature on the landscape. Now, of it, I, I can't even imagine. Um, they would have been aware of it. It was right there. <laughs> Depending on where you think that that people were at the extent of this um, ice sheet, you know, they may have been, they may have, it, it may have blocked their farther into the, um, what is the present day United States, or perhaps maybe some people were already below the ice sheet, south of the ice sheet. Um, that's an area of, of a lot of speculation right now. Um, but in a barrier, it, we can tell not just from archeology, span but we can tell from genetics of, bison that there was there were two bison clades basically separated by this wall of ice um you have the northern clades and the southern clades and they don't actually meet each other until after 13th so it was preventing travel but it it was a very very important feature and it constrains a lot of 
the movement and sort of therefore a lot of the models that we have developed for the peopling of the Americas. And so a major question is if the peopling of the Americas took place after the last glacial maximum, you know, was it by co by the coastal route uh, following the retreat of the glaciers from the west coast about beginning about 17,000 years ago, or could it have gone through uh, an ice-free corridor in the interior? Um, that is an area of active debate. I lean strongly towards the coastal route myself. I I love the way that you describe uh, you you you're acknowledging in our interview right now that you you don't exactly know, but in your book you you try to get into the humanity of the remains that you have either worked with or 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 talking about. So that so in 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 this passage, I remember listening to it thinking about this kid who is going to go that day to see the ice wall and thinking about the limited movement most people have uh like most people don't travel very far uh on a like day-to-day -day basis from their family so this idea of it being you know several miles to go walk and that it being a big adventure i completely could understand and i love uh also to speak to what what Kara mentioned about the the caveats about the uh history of our discipline right i love that you reinforce those at the beginning of every chapter remember this is why i'm telling the story this way this is what and i think that's really really important and you set it out at the very front so for listeners who can't see jennifer she's a white woman right she's speaking yes. <laughs> about indigenous remains and representing the history of 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 peoples the europeans came later we know that that history so i appreciated that because we all teach and talk about uh the peopling of the americas and 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 really have to be extraordinarily generous to all those peoples whose lives were destroyed in the process of european colonization so so um there, there's just so much richness there from from both sides so that's not a question that's just a thank you for doing that repeatedly well thank you the question, i appreciate it yeah yeah, yeah. what and then so so the the question is is sort of following along with that um we about a year ago i think interviewed um jada ben torres and gabriel uh, colon torres about their book and in their book we learned about antonin Furman, who we all should have learned about uh, in our training, but I didn't. And you introduce us to two people who I also wish I'd known more about along the way, William Cobb and George McJunkin, um, both African-Americans who played prominent roles in how we know about the peopling of the Americas. And I wonder if you could tell us about them. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and, and that was a deliberate choice because of course, the history of our discipline on Lichka and Boaz, you know, these, these white figures who were so pivotal and contributed good and bad. <laughs> but I, I think it's also really important to recognize that there were a number of people of color who were also extremely influential. And these are two individuals who I thought it was important to highlight. Um, I'll start maybe a bit more familiar to most uh, folks in the biological anthropology world, at least as a black physician, an anatomist who studied with um, uh, Wingate Todd uh, at Western Reserve University. Um, and he was trained in skeletal um, development and functional anatomy and uh, an extremely um, important 
body of work. He, he looking at racial typologies scientifically and trying to understand is there any basis in um, in biology for these racial typologies that we have. And he, of course, uh, created this really important um, teaching and research skeletal collection at Howard University, which is um, right now curated by uh, Dr. Fatima Jackson, who she was. In. And I was really inspired to dig into the story of Cobb's research, and especially one of his most famous works, um, Race and Runners, in which he disproved the then popular notion that African-American sprinters and other athletes had this innate advantage because of their anatomical differences. But that was really put on my radar by uh, Dr. Rachel Watkins, who um, wrote a, contributed a, a piece for this special issue of um, AJPA that I co-edited with Connie Mulligan last year. And I read her, her piece and I was just blown away. I was like, wow. Cobb and and it was quite a journey and maybe he's not the most immediate um, connection that you might think of when you're talking about but my book is it's a history of some of the the studies of race by by physical anthropologists and then later biological anthropologists so I thought he was important to include and the other person um, who I featured is I think he's a little bit better known by archaeologists so there are a number of archaeologists who write books for the general public who have written about including David Meltzer, who I think is just a fabulous writer. Uh, and, uh, and so I was inspired by, um, by his writing on this history. Um, and I think nobody, uh, to, to feature, uh, to feature uh, McJunkin. And the interesting thing about McJunkin is he was, um, he's the person who discovered the Folsom site. Um, and he, its importance. He didn't, as far as I can tell, a little bit murky, but he did not actually, point, the projectile point that demonstrated a human presence in the Pleistocene, which was a big deal back then. But he identified the importance of the site and the extinct, um, the extinct bison remains that that he uh, he saw. And, and it was out of his experience as a cowboy and a ranch foreman and a hunter um, and which he had developed uh, following his from slavery as a child. He was born in, then uh, became, uh, after the Civil War, lived as a free man, became fascinated by um, natural history and taught himself all about natural history and also learned to read. He exchanged horse breaking lessons because he's a really amazing horseman. As you can tell, if you see his picture, if you know anything about riding and you look at his picture, you see wish I had that posture. <laughs> um, he looks amazing. Uh, and so he traded horseback, horse breaking lessons for um, reading and writing lessons and naturalist and was able to recognize the importance of this site when he came across it. And here I was thinking you could recognize it by how bow-legged he was. That's what I was expecting. <laughs> no, I'm, I am just now learning how to, to ride because now I have a little more time now that the book is done. And so I'm, I see his picture and I'm like, look at that posture. It's perfect. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you do a wonderful job of honoring those folks who get less recognition for the really important work that they do. And we want to kind of hear how that honoring takes place in the lab as well. So in the in the whole process of analyzing the ancient DNA from indigenous ancestors, what sort of kind of ritual goes into that to make sure you're still honoring those individuals and you know the sacrifice that they're making that there wasn't really like formal consent from that individual. 
Yes. Yeah, we can't get consent from the individual themselves. Um, well, I think the process of honoring them starts long before the start of a project. It is in the training of our students to be respectful and mindful that these are people. These are somebody's ancestors. These are not specimens. We banish the word specimen from our from our language, right? Um, we try not to use dehumanizing language like that. Um, but it starts with working with tribes. And, you know, I don't... It's funny. I have relatively less experience in this than some of my elders, right? And so I followed their their path. My postdoc and, and graduate advisor for, for decades. And they have these incredibly long-standing relationships and um, that we don't do any work unless it is approved by a tribe, nothing. Um, and often it's we go to a tribe and ask them or a, an, another indigenous organization, ask them for permission. And as part of that permission, um, seeking permission, we also ask them how we should do the work. So do they want us to attempt non-destructive DNA recovery first before we try anything else? Are there skeletal elements that they would prefer we use and th those that we prefer not to, they prefer we not use? Um, what do we do uh, with anything that, uh, what do we do with the products of our research, like the physical products, um, any leftover skeletal or, or tooth material? Um, what do we do with the data that results, right? That's a big question. That's a really hard question. And it's one that of, there's a great deal of active discussion about that in our field right now. Um, and so that starts sometimes years, all begins. And uh, we, and then once in the lab, you know, we are very mindful of how we treat these remains that, you know, at, at the very least with basic respect. And if there are any specific protocols that we are advised to follow, of course we follow them. Um, we do not photograph remains. We do not dis, well, we, we do as part of our documentation, but they're never shown. Um, and they're always, we always ask for permission before we do that. We never display photographs of remains or skeletons in our talks or our research products. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's just a whole set of, of uh, guidelines that, that boil down to basic respect and, and, and consultation. So you you describe in extraordinary detail the steps involved in just getting into a drawer to take a sample of ancient DNA out. And you describe the elaborateness of, I call it a routine because when we say ritual, people automatically think sacred and religious. But what we mean in ritual is this routinized set of things that is both important for the integrity of the material, I'm sorry, for the integrity of the humans, right? Because the words I'm taking, I'm taking note, the words that we use are important. I don't want to call it material. I'm calling it the, the ancient ones, the people, right, that we are working with. It is important for the integrity of what you have been gifted to or, or been loaned to study, but also it, 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 it does honor the person. And, and I think about this in my own work with living people that when you speak to elders, you don't rush right in and start shouting your questions and waving your arms like in New Yorker, like I, this is what I do. I walk in and I'm loud and I do this. You learn to sit down and be quiet and wait till they get to you. They know why you're there, right? So I really appreciated that. And I, I wonder when you got to what is essentially a, you describe as a pinch of salt, 
all this information uh, is there. I wonder if you could give us a small snapshot. I, I don't expect you to recount two whole chapters, but a small snapshot of some of the steps that are involved in that process. This is what goes into this, the, the sausage of science, as it, as it were. Yeah, sure. So um, it, it starts by decontamination, right? So we use a lot of bleach um, to remove any potential any modern DNA could get into the sample, into the, the DNA that we extract from uh, the bone and um, completely swamp the signal. So we have to take a lot of painstaking precautions to prevent that from happening. Uh, or I should say Dennis O'Rourke's lab because it's it's his facility. He kindly shares it with me. It, it is isolated from the entire rest of the building. It has its own air handling system. It has its own backup power system. Um, and it's positively pressurized so that air flows out of the lab, blowing nonstop, um, fans going all the time to blow air out of the lab. And we keep it very cold so that we don't sweat and our sweat doesn't get onto the benches and, and, uh, and ruin our samples. Um, before we go into the lab, we usually dress, change our clothes and put on something that can get ruined with bleach. Um, so I learned after too many outfits in graduate school getting ruined by bleach, I learned to wear scrubs. Um, and then we go into the lab, we put booties on over our, we take our shoes off, we put on special uh, shoes and booties. We put on a bunny suit, which covers us from head to toe. Um, just think, you know, decontamination, like garb. Um, we cover our faces, we uh, our mask. Um, we're all very good at wearing masks, so the pandemic was not a huge difficulty for us to adjust to that. Um, and we glove up and then we spray ourselves down with bleach of our clothing, of our suits down. Um, um, so if you're somebody who's worked with, say, cell cultures in a hood, you know what I'm Our hand over open tubes, actually closing tubes as quickly as possible, um, bleaching the outside surfaces of everything, bleaching the uh, bench top, bleaching the equipment, but not too much get into your sample. To a problem. Um, and then it's a multi-day step, uh, multi-day, multi-step process of uh, taking the the element, whether it's a bone or a tooth, and um, separating out the uh, and separating the DNA from that. So we use silica column for that process. And then purifying the DNA by washing it multiple times, um, but not too many times, or you're going to lose all those, the tiny little molecules, right, that, that are likely to be ancient. Um, and then from there, you can do any number of steps to access the genome and to, to um, build libraries. So how's your sense of smell? With all <laughs> of that bleach exposure, I imagine there's got to be something going on for you health-wise with all that bleach. Well, you know, the ironic thing is, it, it, however much detail I describe this in the book, I don't actually get to work in the lab anymore. It's really sad for me because that was the thing I was good at. I loved working at the bench. It was my favorite thing. But, you know, you become a PI and you your job is now all about writing grants and supervising students and teaching. Yeah, so I don't actually have time to work in the lab anymore. So my sense of smell is great. Um, once in a while I go and chip in and help with a you know the major lab decontamination where we bleach all the mm -hmm. walls and the, the floor and oh ceiling periodically yeah like once a year we do it um 
and then you know you just don't feel good after that that day uh it's not it's not fun. i mean <laughs> i know how dizzy and awful i feel after cleaning a bathroom which is small and i open a window for ventilation and i still feel like garbage so having that be a regular part of your job is is not pleasant but it's good and important work uh and so from this book there's lots of kind of like little fun things that all of us you know hear about a little bit more like from popular media and, and you address it in, in a more scientific way. Uh, but one of those questions is how did Denosovan DNA potentially contribute to Native Americans? Yeah, that's a really and one that I wish I knew more about. I guess everybody wishes that, right? I wish I was more involved in that is I guess is what I should say. Um, so for those, I, I assume everybody knows what you're talking about when you talk about the, about the Denisovans, but the um, maybe not. So uh, I'll back up a little bit. Um, so this is a group of humans that are um, not anatomically modern. We don't really know what they looked like because we have very few skeletal elements from them, but they were identified um, genomically. They were identified from a genome that was sequenced from what was thought to be, I believe, a Neanderthal bone. Um, and it turns out the genome is very divergent from, from anatomically modern Homo sapiens and um, Neanderthals. It looks like they evolved from a common ancestor shared with Neanderthals about, I think, 450,000 years ago, give or take. That may have changed since I last browsed the literature. But um, there's been a lot of... Um, between Neanderthals, Denisovans, and, and Homo sapiens to the point where, you know, I'm one of those people who argues we shouldn't call them separate species, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> if, we're gonna, if we're gonna use the biological species concept, then we have to say these are the same species. Um, so they um, interbred uh, or inter admixed with anatomically modern Homo sapiens um, in, I believe, South Asia in a couple of different places. Um, again, I'm not really a Denisovan specialist, so I may have gotten that slightly wrong, I'm not sure, but we do see uh, their um, ancestry present in, uh, in Native Americans and the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And in some cases, some of these variants that we see have look like they have signals of selection to be quite common in some regions. Um, and that is fascinating that there is benefit, hopefully, maybe conferred by, um, by those, uh, those variants that have, been, um, that have been selected for. And I think it's an area of really active research that I am excited to, uh, to, to watch in the future. I have to make an admission. Um, some of these fun facts that I, I, pot, I, I noted, I knew, and you, you mentioned that other folks were doing the research. So as one example, Leslie Alusco was on the podcast, but I did not ask her about, about the shovel-shaped incisors and possible branching mammary gland thing that you mentioned because I didn't understand the her initial findings well enough to articulate a good question. So in reading your account, I understood it better. And I almost asked, I was gonna ask you, but I instead, what I'm gonna ask you is, uh, I note in the interview at the end, again, you, you mentioned, I don't talk about my own research all that much. If you noticed in this book, I pieced together a narrative and I had noticed that. And I don't find it to be a problem, but I wonder what your decision-making process was in, in constructing the book that way. 
Yeah, it's very simple. My research isn't published yet. <laughs> so uh, the, the research I would like to include in the book is not done. Um, and, and, and it's for a reason that is related to this book. I, you know, I work with multiple indigenous groups. Um, I'm very honored to be, in some cases, they, they approached me to ask me to do this work with them. Um, I approached them. Um, and, but it, the process of obtaining permission and detailing what the project would look like, what kinds of questions were going to be asked, how we were going to go about doing this work, um, how we were going to keep them uh, went on, that takes a long time, at least the way that I do it. It takes a long, long time and years, in fact. And so when I came to KU um, in 2015, um, I began projects and, and, you know, the next couple of years, these things started, but, you know, the pandemic slowed things down a lot, actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're, we still are not ready to publish those results yet. And I did not feel that it was appropriate to talk about them unless I had explicit community permission. And I, you know, thought it was best to just leave that out and focus on other and what they're doing. And someday I'll um, some exciting papers out and I can't wait to, to share them with people. But um, for right now, I'm just not ready to talk about my research yet. <laughs> well, we will gladly have you back on the show once those papers come out so we can revive this conversation and then see how all that research fits within the book that you just had published. Uh, so we like to end our podcast in the same way, just like we have a similar beginning from podcast to podcast. And that's to kind of ask about you and how you balance work and life and the fun things that you do. And in the little interview at the end of the book, you hint at shadow boxing to keep your hand movements in practice for something else you don't do as much as you used to. So are you willing to spill the beans? <laughs> of course. <laughs> what you I were mean, hinting it, at? <laughs> it, it's kind of embarrassing because I, I really have had to take a break from it for several years. But uh, I used to be, well, I, I have my entire life been an avid martial artist, and I used to be MMA, um, mixed martial arts, and, uh, you know, I was not a very good competitor, but I was a decent practitioner of martial arts, multiple martial arts, and I miss it so much. Um, I kind of put it on hold when I got pregnant, because you don't want to be doing jujitsu and kickboxing when you're pregnant. And uh, then my book kind of took over my life and it was impossible to balance that. So that is something I've had to put on hiatus. But now that the book is done and once my little four-year-old is vaccinated, I'm going to feel safe to go back on the map. Can't wait. Wonderful. Um, you know, I really, um, I, the Captain Picard thing and Kennewick Man really grabbed my attention too. So I have to ask um, one, one more question. And was that, so... You, you you mentioned that 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 the ancient one looks suspiciously in in its recreation like John Luke Picard from Next Generation, and I started looking that up afterward because I was like, yeah, it totally does. I never even realized that. Was that a purposeful thing or a terrible terrible accident that that led us all astray? So I don't know. I have seen different accounts. I have seen at the time this was all happening. I was. A grad student and I was kind of or maybe I was an undergrad I can't remember I was kind of vaguely aware of this but I wasn't really keyed into it as much as I am now um, but I heard different accounts then and, and I've read different accounts you know retrospective accounts about whether or not 
he was deliberately modeled to look like Jean-Luc Picard. I have read that, yeah, he was, mm -hmm. or at least inspired by it. Um, I've heard, I've read other people saying it's just happenstance. I don't know, but I think either way, crazy. I know either <laughs> way, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's not good <laughs> to no. model this ancient indigenous ancestor on a very European sort of, yeah. Very, oh, it yeah. just, it's not a particular to me. decision. That's a particular was, decision. Yes, that's well put, Kara. Yeah, it was a very particular decision. So that and other fun and stunning facts mm -hmm. and a really, really good and responsible approach to trying to model the possibilities for the peopling of Americas is the new book Origin by Jennifer Raff. Thank you, Dr. Raff, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it.